With an introduction like that, I feel obligated to share with you a, uh, a story that I heard uh, years ago that probably would have been more appropriate to tell 10 years ago, but uh, nonetheless is, uh, is interesting. Um, this fellow passes away and he gets to the next world and they pull out the file and they say, well, we got some bad news for you. You know, you haven't been that, you know, great a guy, you know, so you're going to have to spend some time down there. So he says, oh, it sounds terrible. He says, oh, yeah, it is. So he says, well, well what's the story? What, what happens? He says, well, today you have choices. It's not like it was once upon a time. Everybody has choices. You can choose uh, to go to um, American hell, French hell, or Israeli hell. So what's the difference? American hell, you get to go to baseball games, you get to go to restaurants, you get to go to shopping malls, and at midnight, they put you in the most boiling hot water, and you stay there till midnight. He says, it sounds terrible. So it is. So what's French hell? Oh, French hell, you stroll along the boulevards, you go to bistros, you go to cafes, you go to the ballet, and at midnight, they put you in the most boiling hot water, you stay there till midnight. So it sounds terrible. Oh, it is. So what's Israeli hell? Israeli hell, you get up early in the morning, you work on a kibbutz picking apples, you get a pita and a leaven for lunch, and at midnight, they put you in the most boiling hot water, you stay there till the morning. He says, well, why would anyone choose that? Oh, midnight's not midnight. <laughs> the water's not so hot. <laughs> if you don't like leaven, you can have a schnitzel. You know what I'm saying? You know. So, Baruch uh, Hashem, you know, it's, you know, they, they say, you know, they, there's an old expression, you know, that the, the holidays are always early or late, but they're never on time. You know what I mean? And uh, so it is with the Jewish calendar, you know? Somebody uh, observed once that, you know, Kosh Baruch Hu lifted the Jewish people out of time, and we've never gotten back into it. So, Baruch Hashem. So, but we all know where we are now. Last night was Slichos. Last night begins the holiday season. I must tell you that there is something almost magical, almost transformational. You come into shul and the parochas is white and the bima is white, you know. And last night when you hear the kaddish for the chazan, and you hear the nigunim. I never forget one time I was teaching in a shul. Uh, the class that I was teaching was meeting in a shul. And I was going over the Rosh Hashanah davening. And I was explaining, you know, how everything works. And I, of course, you have to give them the nigunim. And I started the Rosh Hashanah davening. Hi, yi, 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 yi. And everybody joins in. Hi, And the shul was shaking. And when we finished, I, I, I couldn't explain it. I was shaking. I said, I, I'm sorry, I can't continue. I can't continue. I went to the office, and one of the rabbis looked at me and said, What's the matter? I told him what happened. He says, It's a matter frame. Mat Ephraim says that the Nigudim themselves have a power to bring us into the Yom Narayim. We understand on some level, deep inside of ourselves, that we are approaching something special. And we are heading, you know, uh, directly into Rosh Hashanah. This is it, the last week of the year, we're on our way towards Rosh Hashanah. And I think the spirit of the day, of the week, of the time we were in, was best summed up to me last year by Yeshiva Bacha who said to me, I would like to go to sleep Erev Rosh Hashanah and wake up after Yom Kippur. Now, I understand exactly what he means. Because this is a very heavy time. It is. The days of awe. The Yom Narayim. Right? As, as kids, we used to remember, we'd come off the shul, and it was such an intense time, and everybody's walking around. You know, if you, you can go certain places, you see people davening with, with, with a fervor. You can go to certain places, people have tears in their eyes. There's an intensity here that just frightens every one of us to the point of almost non-functionality. Unless we ignore it. You can ignore it. That's what a lot of people do. You ignore it. You know, you go into shul and they, they, they hear the shofar blow and they don't hear a primal scream. They don't hear something that's moving down into their essence. They're watching the Baal Tekea to see if he turns purple. You understand? And they're watching him. They want to see how many times he messes up. And the Rav gives a, 
You know what I mean? Went, oh my gosh, how many of them messed up? You know, and you know, you see him switching chauffeur. You know, substitution. Uh-uh, he's bringing in the black chauffeur. It's looking bad here, ladies and gentlemen. You know, oh, okay, we have it. Yay, it's a take. You know, and you're watching the chauffeur. And at the end, it was like, oh, it was very nice. We go home, have the challah and honey, have the apple and honey. You know, but if you're focusing on the day. Din is a word that doesn't translate very well. Judgment? It's more than that. Right? I'm going to take you to din. It's more than judgment. It means judgment and it's an exactitude and it's going to involve consequences. Nobody wants to hear the word din. Din is very frightening. And Rosh Hashanah is filled with it. It's filled with it. And I grew up with a choir. Din, din, din. Din, 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 din. You know, it's, oh my gosh. This is bad news. I don't want to hear din. Can we scare? And that's what a lot of people ask. What do we need Rosh Hashanah for? We're going to have a trial? I know I'm guilty. Hashem knows I'm guilty. Is this a question? HaKadosh Baruch was going to open up the, all of the books and all of the deeds and every person's signature is there. I know already what I did. I just put in a guilty plea. Let's skip to Yom Kippur. <laughs> it's so depressing. Din. And we come to the Sanatokef. And the Malachim tremble in din because even they can't stand before Hashem and din. And they don't have a Yitzhahara and they never did any of the stuff that we did. And they tremble in din. And then there's us. Din. And lest this point be missed, please bear in mind the fact that the, one of the, the Rashi on the first Pesach in the Torah, Elohim is the name of Din. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to create the world in Din and saw that the world could not exist. It would not exist in Din. Therefore, he had to add in Rachamim. It would not exist. Explains Vasil Shasharim in Perak Dalit. Because if Hashem ran the world with Din, exacting Din, what would happen? Three things, he says. As soon as you did something wrong, you would get punished. How many times have we read an account? I've, I've read probably at least a dozen of them, of somebody who describes how he grew up from, and then one time he turned on the light on Shabbos and no lightning bolt came down. No, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't do that because he doesn't run the world with din. But if he did, every time you did something wrong, you would get zapped. Immediately. Boom. I don't know, I don't feel like davening today. Yeah! Like that. Instant. So what's happening to your friend Bob? Ah! Like that. Instantaneous. So that would be number one. Number two is, it would be in burning anger as befitted a rebel against the king. Right? We all know this when we're going to clap al-chait. Each al-chait is introduced with al-chait shechatanu lefanecha. Because before we talk about the individual sin that we've done, there's a more important aspect. Hashem says, but I told you not to. I am the king. Therefore, whether or not spitting in public is the most important thing or not, one can debate. But if the king says, it is forbidden to spit in public, and then the king goes out on a parade, and I say, hey king, how you doing? Chatui. That's it. You're finished. If you did it in some far-flung province and nobody really knew about it, knew. But right in front of the king? And so right in front of the Kodesh Baruch Hu, we rebel? So then the punishment would not merely be immediate. It would be with burning anger as befits a rebel. And the third thing is, there'd be no way to fix what you did. Because that's reality. 
Tshuva is outside of reality. Reality is, if you do something wrong, you can't fix it. Right? You were not paying attention. You know, and you burnt off your hand. And uh, now you, you know, go to the doctor and you say, I feel very bad and I'll never do it again. And I have harata and I, I feel terrible about it. Give me back my hand. Doesn't work that way. In the, in the physical world, you do something, it has consequences. I don't care if you don't like it. Or as Masil Susharan puts it, if you kill somebody, that's it. There's no way to bring them back. Person commits adultery, there's no way to remove that action. It happened. It's reality. So therefore, if the world was run with absolute din, there would not be too many people around. Because we get punished immediately with burning anger and no way to change what we've done, and that would be a world of din. And a Kurdish Baruch who created the world in din saw it couldn't exist and added in Rachman. That's an obvious problem. HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows everything. Hashem knew that the world couldn't exist in Din. If that's the case, why did He want to create a world in Din? He obviously knew it couldn't exist, so He creates a world in Din. A world that can't exist. And then it has to add in Rachamim. You know, just, just so you appreciate this concept for a minute, I, I had a friend of mine who was an industrial psychologist. And what he does is he studies, you know, all kinds of ways to use psychology to get people to buy things. So they do a lot of study to figure out what items to put on the checkout counter line as you're sitting there waiting. Because these are impulse items, right? Nobody, when they go shopping, writes down on their list, pick up a copy of the National Enquirer. Understand? You don't think of that. But you're waiting online, and you're tired, and I didn't know Bush was an alien. It would explain a lot, but, uh, you know. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll buy a copy. You know, who knows? I mean, there he is, and there's the alien. I mean, it's like, it's obvious, you know what I mean? You know, and then you get home and you say, I bought the National Enquirer? What is wrong with me? You know what I mean? And that's what happens. It's impulse. But that, don't think this happened for nothing. People went to college for years to study how to get you to buy things like that. So one of the things they study is colors. And they found red and yellow are colors that make us nervous. They make us excited. We sense danger. It sets us off. Blue and green are relaxing colors. And therefore, people like to go to the water and to the grass because it's relaxing. They paint institutions, bedrooms, blue and green. They're relaxing. Keeps everybody calm. When you go into a fast food restaurant, it's red and yellow. And it makes you nervous. And it makes you hungry. And then you want to eat. And then you want to get out of there because you're getting a headache. And that took years of study to discover. Now... For those of us who have small children, um, you know, small children t tend to ask a lot of questions, you know. And after a while we get frustrated, we don't really know all the answers, you know. So my wife, she's no problem because she knows that, you know, I'm filled with such an enormous amount of worthless information that I've accumulated over the years that when the, you know, when they come up with questions, you know, I just send them to me, you know. So one time one of my kids asked me, why is the sky blue? You know that one? You ever get that from a little kid? Why is the sky blue? I said, obviously, it represents me, this Harachamim. Because the sun, which is red-yellow, represents din. That's why those colors make us nervous. And if you go into outer space and you look at the sun, it's surrounded by blackness, nothingness, non-existent, because nothing can stand up to din. But when you move on to earth, we don't want the sun to destroy us. So there's this blue... Uh, atmosphere that protects us, that represents that Midas HaRachamim. There's, there's something there in those colors that protect us. But the colors of red, red, yellow, of din, that's non-existence. You're surrounded with nothing. It's too frightening to have to be able to face if it's not being protected. So why would a Kodesh Baruch who want to create a world, so to speak, of pure din, where nobody could stand and no one could exist? And Hashem knew this already. Why would he create a world that way? And, and let's understand 
that as we go into Rosh Hashanah, it is an opportunity. Every year, as we move through the year, we understand when you go to a place, there are opportunities in that place that you can take advantage of. Right? You go to Chicago, I've spoken this to people, you say, you go to Chicago, what do you think? Ken's Diner. Get a hamburger. That's it. Why else would I go to Chicago? You understand? That's the purpose of it, you know? And people tend to tell things in terms of food, which is how we Jews function, you know? But I have an, I'm in a place, I have an opportunity. In time, there are opportunities. It's, it's the two little arrows of the childproof cap that's lined up and you can pop it open. It's an opportunity that we can take right now. And Rosh Hashanah is an opportunity if we let it slip out of our hands. Why is there a Yom Adin? Why don't we go right into Yom Kippur? Why don't we go just into a day of forgiveness? What's the purpose of a trial when we know we're guilty? Uh, interesting. You know, you hear, you hear a couple of interesting answers. Uh, one simple approach is, I can't forgive you until we've established your guilt. We have to have a trial. Okay, you and I know you're guilty, but we have to have a trial. Once we have a trial, then we can move on to the forgiveness stage. Okay, that's a technicality. The Sfasema says, there's no way you can do tshuva when you're stuck in the muck and mire of your sins. We have to first go into a Rosh Hashanah which lifts us all the way up above our veyrus so we can go down now and clean it up. But I want to say that there's something beautiful and there's something special and an unbelievable opportunity from the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to drag us into Din, into Ayom HaDin. I'm saying that we don't want to miss Rosh Hashanah. I'm saying that it's the most important day for us. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving us a wonderful opportunity that there's a Yom HaDin. That's why Hashem wanted to create the world in Din, because it was the best world to create. Hashem wanted to make the best world He could. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't exist. But that's the best world. So let's try to understand this. What does it mean when you make a world in Din? So, we have to start at the beginning. It's always important to start at the beginning. And that question is, why are we in this world? Why are we alive? What are we doing here? To serve Hashem, don't worry, Hashem can take care of Himself. Don't worry, Hashem's very secure. He's infinite, He's all powerful, don't worry. Why are we in this world? Says the Messiah Sushar, we were created for only one purpose. You know why we're alive? Hashem created us for one reason, to get the greatest possible pleasure that comes from being close to HaKadosh Baruch Parenthetically, you should know that you can, you can argue this point with people. You know? People say, well, I think something else is a greater pleasure. Let's see. Let's try it out. It's so amazing how people spend their life pursuing a particular pleasure and then at some point realize that may not be the best pleasure. There's something better. You know? I meet people who aren't religious, people who aren't Jewish. And they spend their, you know, certain period of their life running around with a lot of members of uh, the opposite gender, partying, hanging around. And you say, why are you doing this? Oh, because it's the greatest thing. And then at some point they get married. And I said, you're going to get married? He says, yeah. I said, you still... You're still going to run around with other, other women? You're going to cheat on your wife? I said, no. I said, you're going to give all that up? But you told me that was the greatest thing. I realize now that marriage is better. Wow. You really blew the last six years, didn't you? Unbelievable. And there's no way to undo it. Oh, well. I guess it was a learning experience. You know what I'm saying? But if that was the greatest thing, why didn't you decide that six years ago? Why? Because nobody thinks ahead. Most people don't take the best Thing, they take the first thing that comes along. Most people, it's sad, but we don't. The reason most people live meaningless lives is because it's easy. Not because, because they, they want to live a meaningless life. It's easy. People, people want to really live grand lives, great lives. They want to be important, great people. 
Think about how we want to be remembered at the end of our lives. Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People says, write your eulogy. Figure out who you want to be at the end of your life. It's such an amazing thing. And you'll see that the way we want to be remembered at the end of our life is usually not the way we're living our lives. Right? Otherwise, nobody would play solitaire on the computer. Right? <laughs> it's better than a deck of cards. You don't have to shuffle it. You can change the backs. You know what I mean? But most people don't schedule in, you know, 10 to 11, you know, solitaire. But what happens? They're waiting for email to come in or they're waiting on a phone call and they start playing and then they get stuck. Have you seen these people? <laughs> oh, look, your best friend just came to visit. Hi. We're supposed to go out for dinner. Uh-huh. It's almost Shabbos. Yeah, I'm coming. House is on fire. Uh-huh. They keep playing because at the end they get to watch the cards cascade. <laughs> Some people are so desperate they watch all the cards cascade. <laughs> and then it comes on. Ding! Do you want to play again? I didn't want to play the first time. But I got stuck. I didn't know how to stop. Why? Because it's easy. You all have to do is click it. You don't have to think. You don't have to work at it. It's really very simple. And so slowly a person will choose what's easy over what they really want to do. Look at a person who just spent an hour playing solitaire. They come up. How do they feel? Invigorated, excited, glad to be alive. They're already dead. They're just missing the box. You know what I mean? Oh, I can't believe I just wasted an hour doing that. I feel so stupid. You know, why did you do it? Because it was easy. It was easy. But think about who we really want to be at the end of our lives. We want to be someone noble. We want to be somebody wonderful. When I was sitting shiva for my father, so uh, I'm one of six boys of whom I'm the quietest. And uh, so four of the boys were upstairs and, and most of them lived in the same area and knew the same people. I, you know, I and my brother who was living here in Highland Park, so we sat downstairs. And because we had people coming from different places than everyone else. And when you're, if you've ever been in this situation, you, every now and then, when there's action happening on both sides of the room, it gets a little quiet, you hear what's going on on the other side of the room. And at one point, my brother said to me, you know, Dad ran a florist shop for 50 years. And that's not what anybody came to talk about. They came to talk about the tzedakah that he did, they talked about the chesed that he did, they talked about the good things that he did. And he said, most of what we do in our lives, nobody remembers after we're gone. And I said, and the difference between a tzaddik and a regular person is that to a tzaddik, most of his life are those little moments. Most of his life are filled with something that is meaningful. What am I doing in this world? And it's always amazing. Could you imagine? We know people. I don't want to mention any names, I'm sure. But, you know, we know people who if anyone would ever tell what their life was really like when they passed away, what a depressing funeral. Harry, he loved his cigars. You never saw him without a cigar. Why did he love to smoke cigars? Oh, I'm going to tell you, he didn't care. People used to complain, but he smoked his cigar. And boy, did he like scotch. You had to see him drink. Oh, when he drank, well, did he happy? You know, nobody wants to say that. We want to be remembered as noble and great. A mafia hitman at his funeral. You think he wants anyone to say what he really did? You know, uh, Vinny, <laughs> he was a great killer. He killed lots of people and always in creative ways. I remember one time he had this guy by the throat. It was, oh, that's not what they're going to say. Vinny was a good friend. Vinny was loyal. Vinny was good to his mother. <laughs> but we want to be remembered as doing something good and noble. We don't want to remember this small and... I, I have a whole bunch of stories. I'm not going to tell them now. But they always star me with people like Rory Bowman Zatzal and, you know, and other you know, big people. And, and in each one of those stories, when I look back at them, so the person who's small and petty is always me. And the person who's big and noble is always, you know, the gadol in the story. You know? And I think to myself, why do I always have to be me? Why can't I be him? And the answer is, when I want to be him badly enough, then I'll have my own stories. But right now, I like being small and petty. You understand? What am I going to do? If I have to actually change? But if you go ahead to the end of the story, who do you want to be? What's really important to you? We all want to be 
people who are important and big. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world for us to get the greatest pleasure. And if you look back at the end of your life and you'll see what's really important to you, you'd be really surprised. No, you wouldn't be surprised. We all know. We know what's really important to us. We just don't focus on that. You know, you ever have people tell me, most important thing in my life are my kids. Most important thing in my life are my kids. You ever spend any time with them? No, I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm making money for my kids, not for, for my kids. <laughs> you know? No, the person really means it. The most important thing in his life is his kids. Why doesn't he spend time with them? Because he doesn't stop to think. He doesn't stop to tune it in. This is the sort of a thing that every one of us has to be honest with ourselves. And so, when we look at what's really important to us, the Kaddish Baruch created us to get the greatest possible pleasure. The greatest possible pleasure is this unbelievable spiritual pleasure that comes from being close to Hashem. Okay, so why don't you hand it to me? I'm, I'm game. Put me up in Olam Haba, sit me on a cloud, you know, hit me with the pleasure rays, and I, I'm with you. Kaddish Baruch Hu didn't want to give you a pleasure. He wanted to give you the greatest pleasure. And the greatest pleasure is, this is a hard thing to hear, if I didn't hear it from my Rebbe so many times, I'd be embarrassed to say it. He doesn't want you to relate to him as a child to a father. He does not want you to relate to him as a slave to a king. He wants you to relate to him as an equal. Creator to creator. Borei to borei. At Har Sinai, there are hundreds of Chazal that compare Mamad Har Sinai to a wedding. You can't marry a slave. You can only marry an equal. <coughs> HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to meet us as equals. That means he doesn't want to hand it to us. He wants us to do it on our own. It's an unbelievable concept. It's unbelievable. Because if you think about this statement, what this statement means is you are capable of such unbelievable greatness, you just don't realize it. If there's going to be a trial, the first thing the judge has to determine is, are you competent to stand trial? Can you handle this? Are you aware of your actions? Can you manage? HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to hold you up and make no mistake about it. He's going to hold you up to other Barishon before the sin. You are the single most important person in the world. And he's going to lift you all the way up and see how far did you get. Because you are capable of greatness. And this is something that is so hard for us to understand. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to make the world... Okay. You can't create a world in Din, obviously. No one deserves to exist before they exist. No child can say, I deserve to be born. Right? It's just the opposite. Kids tend to say the opposite. You know what I mean? Well, I didn't ask to be born. Right? I mean, one guy told me he always carries a 44 with him. First kid who says that, he says, no problem, I'll solve it right now. So he says, well, let me restate my position. <laughs> what I mean is, I had no say in the matter. Of course you had no say in the matter. Who are you supposed to consult? Understand? Nobody has a right to be born. To be born is an act of chesed. To create the world is an act of chesed. But Hashem wanted to make the best chesed. The best chesed is a world of din, because it means you earn it. You understand? We all know this. In the 1960s, my father took me to Gettysburg National Park, one of the highlights of my life. It was so exciting. We got a tour guide. We went around. I was following it. And I remember I went to the Gettysburg you know, uh, Visitor Center. They have this big map with these lights that they flicker. You know, and here are the, here's Lee's troops, and here's Bees, and here's the Confederacy, and, here's the, and where they're coming, and pick his charge. And what can I tell you? It was pretty low tech. But for me, in the 60s, it was the most exciting moment of my life. You know? And like all exciting moments of our life, you can never give this over to your children. It just, it's impossible. I was doing a Shabbaton in Harrisburg, and on Sunday I was on my way over to, uh, over to Baltimore. So we go right past Gettysburg. And I said, kids, I'm going to give you the treat of your life. You know? I take them into the visitor center. I show them the map. I'm sitting there reliving my youth. It was so exciting. The lights come back on. I said, so what would you think? And one kid says, I didn't understand a thing. <laughs> the other kid said, who's the union? <laughs> you know? 
can't bring your kids up in Israel and expect them to appreciate the American Civil War. That's what I learned, you know? But, uh, but I'm there. And my father at one point says, you know, this is one of the biggest battles. This was the biggest battle in North America, over 50,000 casualties. You know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of bullets were probably shot. It was unbelievable. Maybe you can still find some. That's 100 years later. No reason I shouldn't find some bullets, you know? So me and my, you know, I, there's, there's three of us around the same age. We all go out and we start digging <laughs> the battlefield. And I found a bullet, a Confederate Civil War bullet. And so did my two brothers. Each one of us found the bullet. It was unbelievable. I can't tell you how I cherish that. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed that. Years later, my older brother told me that my father bought him in the gift store. <laughs> and he said, drop it and make it look like they found it. I was a little disappointed when I heard that. And I thought to myself, why? Why is it of any less value if my father would have just said, yeah, you want a bullet? Here's a bullet, you know? Why was it more important when I dug it up? Because I did it myself. It was my own accomplishment. Oh, those of us who have, you know, visited Israel, we all know. People take you to various archaeological sites, and invariably, you find a piece of broken pottery. And you are sure that this is the most important find of the past 2,000 years. You hide it because you're smuggling antiquities. You're afraid they're going to find you. And you put it on display in your living room. Yeah, it's a piece of pottery that I uh, found that in an archaeological site. Now, I hate to be the one to break this to you, okay? People have lived in Israel for thousands of years. They all had pottery and it all broke. <laughs> pottery, you don't, they don't even know what to do with it. If you go to the Southern Wall excavations, they just filled in the spaces between the tile with broken pottery. And between me and you, for all you know, that was some Arab tabuka that broke yesterday. You don't even know where it's from. Everybody is so excited. Why? Because I found it. And everybody knows that if I do it on my own, it's worth more. Right? The greatest baseball player in the world, whoever he may be the biggest home run hitter, you know? Babe Ruth was Manoi. You know what I'm saying? Now that they're taking down Yankee Stadium, just take a moment to reflect. And, uh, <laughs> so uh, I, was in, I was in Denver and somebody said, you know, they said that the people, you know, love, all around the world, love to hate the Yankees. I said, and in New York, it's not that we want to root for the Yankees, we like the fact that everyone hates us. And that gives us strength. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's important to us. But anyway, the greatest home run hitter in the world is standing up there. And the pitcher looks at him and goes to the outfield. And the whole outfield comes in and makes a semicircle in the infield. And the pitcher gets off the mound and walks halfway towards the batter and throws the ball. Whee! Strike one. He doesn't even swing. He's shocked. And the other team goes, you can do it. Come on, you can do it. The guy's seething. There's smoke coming out of his ears. He picks up the bat. They throw the ball again. Boom, hits it out of the park. Nobody runs for it. They go, yay, run around the bases. You hit a homer. What a bizarre. What an embarrassment. I'm the greatest home run ever. Don't patronize me. I want to see you throw your fastest hardball. I want to see what you can do. Because I know I'm talented. I know I'm great. I know I'm capable. Don't treat me like a child. Because even a child doesn't want to be a child. You ever try to feed a, a child, a little baby? They reach a certain age where they will not let you feed them. With, with 300 pounds of pressure, they pull the spoon and say, do it myself. And it goes in their hair, and it goes in their ear, and it goes in their nose. Every orifice but the mouth, you know? And it's going over here. But they're so happy. They're filthy, but they're happy. Because I did it myself. And they want to get dressed by themselves, and their head goes in the sleeve, you know? And they put their feet, their shoes on the wrong feet, but they don't care. Because I did it myself, because I want to be big. Inside of every one of us, we know we can be big. I don't know at what point we lose that. But we remember as kids we wanted to be big. 
So before we went to Gettysburg today, you know, Erev Shabbos, I took them to Hershey Park. And uh, I must tell you the truth, amusement parks hold no attraction for me whatsoever. You know, to pay money to be strapped into a machine that's going to hurl me upside down 200 miles an hour in the dark holds no appeal for me. I, I, live in, I live in Israel. I could just take a taxi and have the same experience. You know, it's like, you know... <laughs> but most of my kids were insane, you know, and uh, I, I don't know where they get it from, they don't get it from me, but most of them are insane, and they want to go on these machines. I have one other kid who's more or less like me, a coward, afraid of everything, you know what I mean? We go on the merry-go-round, and we're going, whoa, whoa, take it easy there, boy, <laughs> whoa, big fella, you know, we're not, I, I, speed and heights, these mean nothing for me, you know what I mean? Give me quarters, I'll go to the ski ball, I'm very happy, that's enough, you know what I mean? That's as exciting as life gets, you know? But they put this one ride right over the path. And they don't have seats. Their feet are hanging down in like this, just this thing. And it comes down in a corkscrew. And it's spinning around, like right on top of you. And these people are screaming at the top of their lungs. Ah! And me and my daughter are just standing there, horrified. <laughs> and before you can recover, the next one comes. Ah! And you say, why doesn't somebody help those people? <laughs> it's just, I can't imagine anyone doing this on purpose. You know what I mean? But I just, we were just looking at this scene. It was, we just closed our eyes and ran. It was just so horrible, you know? But of course, my, one of my younger children, who's also insane, so she wants to go on. But you can't just go on the ride. You have to reach the clown's hand. <laughs> and oi, bye bye if you don't reach that clown's hand. You are stuck with Abra on the merry-go-round listening to him just scream. Ooh, forget it. You want to go up there with your crazy sisters, you know? And I remember her going like this on her tippy toes, trying to reach the clown's hand, and she wanted to be big because she knew she could do it. She wanted to be big. And that's every single one of us. We want to be big. We don't want to be little. We don't want to be petty. How sad. Isn't that one of the saddest moments? I just always remember that. It's one of my saddest moments of my youth. If Gettysburg was the greatest, Mary Poppins was one of my saddest moments. After, after Michael and Jane made this run on the bank and the whole place is being destroyed and as far as losing his job and everything's falling apart, little Michael comes down with the tuppence and says, here's the tuppence, father. I hope that makes everything all right. And there he is, looking at this tuppence, and to think, he lost his kids, he lost his job, he lost everything over a tuppence. Oh, so small. Why don't you be big? Why can't you be big? Why can't you be grand? And a Kurdish Baruch who knows you can. About 15 years ago, I think, there was a campaign where they took out these billboards around America. They were white with black writing, and they were signed by God. I don't think God actually did the campaign, but I don't know either. And they had lines like, which part of thou shalt not don't you understand? God, you know? And I also wrote a book, God, you know? And there was one that made such an impression on me, and it says, but I believe in you, dot, dot, dot. So many people are worried about whether or not they believe in God, but God says, I believe in you, I know you can do it. I know you're capable. I know you're bigger. Sometimes we don't want to. Now this is a terrible problem because we live in a world today and my generation basically started it. I don't know where everybody is here in life. But it's more or less, my, my father's generation wasn't like this. For sure not. You know? You know? Harry Truman. There was a president. The buck stops here. You know what I'm saying? You know, that was, that was the... Ronald Reagan he got on television you know when uh, uh, 1982 when the car bomb blew up the marine barracks in Lebanon and he says ultimately the responsibility lies with me I am the commander in chief and I will take responsibility for this when Bill Clinton it turned out that he lied under oath the defense he offered was it's not my fault they shouldn't have asked me the question. <laughs> and I appreciate that. Because if you ask me a question, what else am I supposed to do but lie? 
I mean, what, what else can I do? It's not my fault. You know? And that's my generation. <laughs> that's where we came in. When I was growing up, if you were walking down the street and you tripped and you fell in front of a store owner's shop, he came out and screamed at you. You stupid kid, why don't you watch where you're going? Then he called your father. Your father yelled at you. You stupid kid, why don't you watch where you're going? Now I've got to pay for x-rays and everything. What's wrong with you, you idiot? You know what I mean? And you know what? Next time you walked more carefully. Now if you fall down, right away the store owner comes running out. He says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Because he knows you're going to sue him. Because it's his fault that there are hard sidewalks. How do you expect me to walk down the street without falling? Now this is a culture. It's began. They give out an award every year. Based on this woman who bought a cup of coffee at McDonald's. <laughs> I, you can't make up stuff like this. And she was driving home with a cup of coffee held between her legs. And it spilled. And she burned herself and she crashed. And she sued McDonald's because they didn't tell me the coffee was hot. You can't make this up. Now you can go into any store. And when you buy a cup of coffee, it says, Caution! Contents may be hot. Because how did I know the coffee was hot? By the way, if the coffee was cold, she would have sued for mental anguish. You know what I mean? What do you want from me? So this began a whole... They go giving out awards to people who did the, you know, really lived up to this, you know? A woman who slipped on soda that was on the floor and fell and broke her leg, sued the restaurant and won, even though she had just thrown the soda at her uh, boyfriend and was lunging at him when she slipped. <laughs> and she won, you know? I only remember the last, I've been following, I apologize. The last one I remember was this guy who was driving his Winnebago and put it on, you know, uh, cruise control and went in the back to get a drink. <laughs> Winnebago flew off the road and was crashed and the guy lived. I don't know if you say thank God or not in that kind of instance, you know what I mean? And he sued Winnebago and he won. He got a new Winnebago. And now if you look in the instruction manual, it says caution. Does not, uh, 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 cruise control is not automatic pilot. You must still steer the car. So tell me you're not amazed when you see the safety warnings. How could you not be amazed? When you see planters peanuts and it says caution may contain peanuts. <laughs> see if I'm lying. Take a look. I saw a power sword. It says do not cut wood while it's in your lap. <laughs> By the way, good advice. Good advice. And I had a hairdryer and it said do not use underwater. Also good advice. But I mean, but the classic, and you can see it now, this time of year, go to the store and see if I'm making this up. On a Superman costume, they write, caution does not allow wearer to fly. <laughs> Which is shocking, because I paid $6.99. Why can't I fly? <laughs> but I gotta write it down, because they'll sue me. Because nothing is my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And so we become this generation of whiners and everybody's against me and everybody, uh, and I have so hard and I can't manage anything and everything's so difficult for me. Do you ever see a marriage like this? You know? It's best when you have two whiners together. That's my favorite. <laughs> I can't handle the kids. The kids are too crazy. Can't you handle it? No, I can't handle it. I gotta go there. Why don't you take it? No, I have to make jobs. Why can't we find it? And you're waiting for an adult to come in and slap them. Stop this! <laughs> Will you grow up already? But we don't because we are whiners. We whine, we complain. And we make ourselves so small when really we're so big. <laughs> As learning Chavetz Chaim, Moshe Che tells the story when he was in the Philadelphia Zoo and he said, I was walking past a lion cage and suddenly the lion roared and I said to the zookeeper, can he break out? He says, yeah, but don't worry, he doesn't know it. <laughs> and that's us. I want to tell you uh, absolute truth. The Yetzirah does not want to get you to sin. That's small stuff. He's much smarter than that. He doesn't want to get you to sin. The Yetzirah wants to convince you that you don't count. 
You are irrelevant. Yeah? You think Hashem cares if you daven? Look at all the stuff you do wrong. Look at how much hurry you speak. Look at all the things you do wrong. You think Hashem wants to hear your feelings? <laughs> Who cares what you do? Yeah? You think, you think you're going to bring Mashiach? You think you're going to make a difference? Who are you? Such a powerful story. It's in chicken soup for the soul. I heard a famous educator, you know, Torah educator quote it once, so I feel like it's got a heksha, you know. This guy's walking along the beach, and he's picking up starfish that get washed up on the beach, and he's throwing it back in the sea. And the guy says to him, what are you doing? This is happening on beaches all around the world. You can't get to all the starfish. What are you wasting your time for? You can't make a difference. And he picks up another one and throws it in and says, I made a difference to him. You're going to tell me what I can't do? You're going to tell me what I can't do? That's the Yitzhahara. The Yitzhahara wants to convince you that you are small and irrelevant and no one cares. I was giving a class once and somebody asked me, Rabbi, who did um, Cain and Hevel marry? I said, well, Hevel didn't marry anybody. He died pretty early on. Cain married his sister. He says, Rabbi, isn't that incest? I said, yes. I said, so why would God populate the world by incest? I said, because he had an alternative. He could have made 25 men and 25 women. And then there'd be no problem of incest. But then every single person in the world would say, I was number 23. And if I didn't get married, it really didn't make a difference. And if I would have died, nobody would have cared. HaKadosh Baruch Hu would rather rely on not the best method to populate the world so that every person, every person is obligated to say, say the Chazal. You have to say this every day. I am Adam Arishon. You are the single most important person in the world. The fate of the universe lies in your hands. And the Yetzirah is telling you as I'm speaking, he doesn't mean you, schlepper. He doesn't mean you, he means somebody else. No, you, every single person in this world holds the future of the world in your hands. And it's frightening. It's frightening. That's why the Yitzhahara has been so successful at beating us down to believe that we don't count. We don't make a difference. Whatever I say, whatever I do. And you have no idea what you do. You have no idea. Trust me, you have no idea. Jonathan Rosenblum tells such a powerful story about these three Hollywood screenwriters who are having brunch in uh, Los Angeles. And this from family walked by coming back from shul. And one of them looked at this family and he looked at his two friends and he says, you know, we'll never have that. We'll never have a family. We'll never have a purpose. We'll never have a meaning. And all three of them went and started studying about Judaism and they all three became from. Could you imagine when this family gets up to Shemayim? And they say, well, let's see what you did. Well, you made these people from and their children and their grandchildren. And they went out. One of them became a big Rebbe. And he went out teaching people. And this one became a Rav. Look what you did in the world. What? Me? What did I do? You walked down the street with a smile on your face. And in the process, you changed the world. Changed the world. You know what is Yom Adin? Because you can do it. That's why. Don't believe you can't. Okay, are we going to fall short? Yes. The clown's hand is very high up. But how much can you be zaychibedin first? How much can you deserve it? So, you're not the best student. You're not stupid, but you're not the best student. And you studied really hard. You crammed, you crammed, you crammed. And you come in for the test. And they're handing out the test. And the teacher hands you a test. You sit down, you raise your hand, and you say... Uh, Teacher, it's blank. She says, yeah, yeah, I know. Don't worry about it. She says, well, what do you mean? So I'll, I'll give you an A. Don't worry about it. Just sit there and color. She says, no, 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 but, but I studied. I can do it. She says, yeah, I know. That's cute. Anyway, just sit there. Shh, don't interrupt everyone else. They're taking the test. Oh, I could do better than that. Let me try. How much can I manage? I don't want to be little. You know, if you go into a marriage and your spouse says to you, listen, sweetheart, I want you to know, I appreciate the fact that you're an extremely limited person. I really don't expect very much from you. And I want you to know, you can blow up at me, 
you can be selfish, you don't have to help, you don't have to watch after the children, because we all know already, you know, it's the best you can do, but we'll always love you. <laughs> now, if anyone's thinking, hey, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Then you're the sort of person who goes out on a date and your, you know, date starts cutting up your steak and goes, here comes the airplane. <laughs> and if you think to yourself, yeah, that's pretty cool, you know, then you know that you're not ready for an adult relationship. HaKadosh Baruch who wants you to make it on your own. If you fall short, there's still Yom Kippur. But how much can you do on your own? How much can you deserve it? I had a student once, kept telling everybody how mature he was. Oh, I'm not really with these kids, I'm so much more mature, I'm so much more mature. Never got up before 11 o'clock. So finally I said to him, you know, maturity means facing up to your responsibilities. And he said, he looked at me and he says, you know, Rabbi, maybe you should ask yourself why you can't motivate me to get up in the morning. <laughs> and there was nothing to say. What is it you can say? A person like this will never change because I'm not capable of anything. If I don't get up in the morning, it's your fault. If I don't learn, it's your fault. If I don't do well in school, it's your fault. You know, it's society's fault. It's the yeshiva's fault. It's the shul's fault. It's everybody's fault. My son was once there on a circus. I went to visit with Moshe Shapiro, my Rebbe, and and he started to ask him about problems that existed in society. And there's no shortage. Rav Moshe went over all the various problems, which coincided well with my son's, you know, perception of the world. And so he finally said to Rav Moshe, so what are we going to do? And he says, take care of yourself. Be big. Take responsibility for your life. You're right. You can't rely on this one. You can't rely on that one. This is not good at it. So you do it yourself. Be big. We're going to go into Yom HaDin because Din is the greatest thing in the world. And it's hard. Yitzchak Avinu. He was Din. And he was called Yitzchak. Laughter. There's probably not a less funny guy in the whole Torah than Yitzchak. <laughs> he was 75 when his father died. What conversations did they ever have? The Torah tells us one. Where's the sheep, Dad? You're the sheep. That's it. <laughs> Off we go. You know why he was laughter? Because laughter is always the unexpected. You never laugh at something that you expect. It's always the unexpected. Everyone knows that. You know? You, you, you hear something, you see something, you weren't anticipating it, and you laugh. It catches you off guard. It's incongruous. To think that a person could live in din... To think that a person could live up to total judgment, and that was Yitzchak. Why? Because the Kodesh Baruch Hu said to Yitzchak, I'm going to take your life now. Why? What'd I do? Nothing. Just thought I would take your life. And Yitzchak said, It's yours. Anytime you want it back, take it back. Anytime you want it, it's yours. You want my life? It's yours. Well, I, I, I'm in a position to say anything. There wasn't a complaint. There wasn't a question. It's your life. You want it back, you take it back. Who can imagine such a thing? And every one of us are going to do that on Rosh Hashanah. Every one of us are going to be Yitzchak. Because as it says in the Torah, God breathed in a breath of life. That's how you're alive. And we're going to take that shofar and we're going to blow that back to Hashem. It's yours. Now, most people who blow the shofar won't die from the experience, right? Unless, you know, you're not really well, in which case get a substitute, right? You know, but we're not going to die from it. But you know what the message is? And the message is so profound. If I can quote a non-traditional source, General Patton. He said to his men, I'm not looking for anybody to die for their country. You don't win wars by dying for your country. You win wars by making the other guy die for his country. That's a very powerful thought. Kodesh Baruch Hu says, I don't want you to die for the cause. I want you to live for the cause. You know how many people I've met who would be willing to die as Kiddush Hashem? But to be able to live it? To be able to live a life where I say, Hashem, it's your life. 
That's the unbelievable thing. That's Rosh Hashanah. Hashem is Melech. You know what that means, Melech? He can't be Melech unless I say you're Melech. I will make you the king. I will give you my control. I will allow you to rule over me. That's the power. That's why we have a Rosh Hashanah. And if we fall short, we fall short. But you know what? Every year, you're going to grow a little bigger. And you're going to grow a little higher. Unless, like so many people, we argue our limitations. We look down at ourselves. We let the Eitzhah tell us we're not important and we don't count. You think a person can't do something that will change the world? I don't know if I told this story here. But I was here years ago, so it doesn't matter anyway. Anyway, it was such a powerful story. A woman came to me once, she heard me speak, and she says, you know, I'm so inspired, I want to change the world. I said, okay, I appreciate that, you know, but, you know, you're a mother of young children, and that's really, you know, let's put our focus on the family. The Jewish people are as strong as each individual family, and we have to build our home. She says, yeah, but I, I have time, I have time, I want to save the world, I want to do something big for the world. So I said, listen, don't underestimate when we take care of our family. Said, but I want to do something for the world. I said, okay, what's your degree in? I don't have a degree. What's your experience? I have an experience. Do you have any unusual talent? No. Think, there must be something that you do that is very special. I bake. Okay? Let's think about this. And we'll talk tomorrow and figure out how we're going to bake the world into a better place. I had no idea what else to tell this woman. And she calls me up the next day, she says, I figured it out. And I said, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> it's an old rabbi trick. If you can put off the calls long enough, they work it out on their own. <laughs> I said, what is it? She says, there's a school for special children, not far from me. And I'm going to, on Rosh Chodesh, make them cupcakes. I make great cupcakes. You know, my cupcakes are great. I put filling and I got the, the whole nine yards. It's great. I make great cupcakes. I'm going to bake it. 50 kids, I'm going to make them cupcakes. I said, it's beautiful. Well, she calls me up the day after Rosh Chodesh and she's flying. She says, the Menahel called me up and said, you don't know what you did for these kids. These are kids that don't see very well and they don't hear very well and they don't move very well. But the one sense that works well for all of them is taste. And you made these kids very happy. And I was so moved and I was so touched and I thought it was so heartwarming. I see her a few months later. I said, how's it going? She says, I'm setting up a website. I said, I'm not that technical savvy, but why do you need a website to bake cupcakes? You know what I mean? At this point, you can't email them. I know that much. You know what I mean? You know? What, what do you need a website for? She says, well, after the second month, I started getting calls from other schools for special children. They said, we heard what you did. Could you make cupcakes for our kids too? They would love a homemade treat. So she said, look, I, I can't make hundreds of cupcakes, but I've got neighbors. And I started asking around my neighbors. This one said, well, you put me down for once a year. One said, I'll do it once every three months. I'll do it once every two months, you know. And so I have to coordinate the women with the schools. And if anything falls short, I'll fill in. And I hung up the phone. I have to tell you, I was humbled. I'm telling this story for many years. That's why I don't cry anymore when I tell it. But I, I was so humbled because you hear stories of great people. Gedolei Torah. People with superpowers. People who have unbelievable intelligence. I can't relate to them. I am so incredibly ordinary. Maybe below average. But certainly, I, I'm, I'm not one of these great people. I give a shir every other Motzi Shabbos and Haranof, and on more than one occasion, someone said, I love coming to your shirim, Rabbi Yolofsky. You're so ordinary. <laughs> and, and I feel like, if you could do it, anyone can. <laughs> and I appreciate that, because I am. <laughs> it's true. You know? And here's the story of an ordinary person, without any special powers, without any special abilities, but she wanted to make the world a better place. And because of her, there are hundreds and hundreds of kids whose lives are very hard. That's been made a little sweeter, a little softer, just because she cared. Just because she knew she could make a difference. Just because she knew she could be big, because she knew she could go into Rosh Hashanah and say, okay, Okay, I'm going to stand tall. Maybe I won't get a hundred on that test, but I deserve to take it like everybody else. Don't give me a blank piece of paper and wink at me. I'm not a child. Don't patronize me. We have expectations because we're capable of greatness. And that's what Rosh Hashanah is for. 
We're going into a Yom Adin for only one reason, because the Kaddish Baruch Hu knows we can. We're going into a Yom Adin because the Kaddish Baruch Hu knows how incredibly important and great you are. There's an evening here tonight, hundreds of people, because there were a few people who decided to do something. And the money is being raised for tzedakah, because a few people decided to do something. And all of us are here tonight when I'm sure we have other things to do because we decided to do something. Because every one of us knows that we're capable and competent. And in that schus, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will allow us to continue to grow and Amir Hashem go into the next year where we're going to be able to become even bigger until we finally achieve that greatness that's within. Thank you very much. Aksiv Simitayba.